Welcome to Rusty Sonnets, the podcast where I take an old poem, read it out, give it a good going over before I wander off on one. Today's podcast is part three of the Paradise Lost book club. So if you are new to this podcast in any way, we are looking at Paradise Lost by John Milton. One book a month. It's 12 books long. So each month, I'm a bit late for this month one I know and I'll be making excuses at the end of the episode rather than boring you with them now but one book of Paradise Lost we go over a month so we're up to this is meant to be the March episode but I'm recording it at the beginning of April so we're looking at book three of Paradise Lost today now if you haven't listened to this one I listen if you haven't listened to this podcast and or if you haven't listened to the Paradise Lost book club episodes of this podcast then I recommend that you get onto my SoundCloud page or any page where I'm hosting this podcast or even just look up the podcast feed if you're if you're getting this via Apple or via Spotify or any other of the good podcast suppliers that are giving you this podcast and find the earlier episodes but if you're on the SoundCloud page it's really easy because at the top of the Rusty Sonnets SoundCloud page there's a playlist and that has all the episodes, the available episodes of Paradise Lost Book Club. So you can easily find episode one and two on those. And I reckon you're much better off starting from the beginning, if you ask me. Now, if you're still here, fantastic. Um, I can give a summary here. I can give a summary of a story so far. So in the first book, it was pretty much a case of Satan and all of his rebel angels were lying around in hell, feeling sorry for themselves. And for some reason, Satan was able to sort of get up on his feet crawl over to a rock address everyone address all his buddies get them all g'd up then they all started they felt yeah let's let's get god back somehow or other and then they started marching about playing trumpets unfurling flags digging stuff up from the ground and they built this big massive hall to have a meeting in and that was the end of part one and in part two they had their meeting and after lots of consultations with his other rebel angels satan decided that it was better perhaps to get his revenge on god and the other angels through subterfuge rather than open war and so um because of this he'd heard or he'd placed i think he told beelzebub to tell him that oh there just happens to be another creation that god has made and there is another another race that he has created this is of course homo sapiens or mankind and so satan decides that he will go and spy on them and work out what he can do um, to bring that down, to bring down God's new perfect world, and that will get him back. Everyone celebrates. He decides to go off on his own. He goes off on his own. They all start just, I don't know, running around, playing musical instruments, picking up mountains, throwing them around and stuff like that, and just having a bit of a laugh, a bit of a doss, and sort of giving birth to modern, to, to well, to classical philosophy and stuff like that at the same time. While at the same time, Satan got to the gates of hell where he met sin and death now sin was actually satan's daughter and death who is this kind of weird shadowy figure that you couldn't quite make out who was holding a sting that he threatened everyone with such as uh, i guess that comes from corinthians death is where where is thou sting he's holding this sting threatening everyone going come on you want some and satan's like yeah come on then and then sin says stop that so basically the family the, fa the family arrangement it turns out to be that Sin is the daughter of Satan and Death is the son of Satan and Sin. Yeah.
yucky. Okay, so in the end, they Satan says, look, look, if we overthrow this, then you guys will be super powerful and you won't be just stuck hanging around this gate anymore in death. You can just run around and just sting everyone you want because the world will be yours and I will and, and sin, the world will be yours too. So they let him out. And then he, he kind of goes into the realms of chaos and he goes on quite a quite a heroic journey and he meets other guardians and inevitably they 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 let him pass as well and then finally he comes upon our world and our world i guess in the miltonian sense is the universe now one or two more disclaimers before i begin with part three and the first disclaimer is is that i haven't really made this disclaimer before but i want to make it clear now because i am aware that some of my listeners might be religious people some of my listeners might be christians um, or Muslims and so they have their their own particular beliefs about God and beliefs about Satan as well now and and beliefs about Jesus so while I have dealt with Satan and I've dealt with Satan in quite a whimsical way in places in this I want to make it very clear now now that we're we're kind of dealing with Milton's characters of God and Milton's character, um, Milton also has um, features Jesus in this chapter. So Satan, God and Jesus are all depicted in this chapter. I want to make it very clear that I am dealing with Milton's God, Milton's Jesus or Milton's son of God or son of man and Milton's Satan. And so I will try and make that clear as much as I can. I, I no idea what you what your concept of those characters or your belief of those uh, those names is but I will make it I will make it clear as much as possible that I am dealing sometimes irreverently with the three entities as they are depicted and imagined by Milton and um, and if I if I ever forget to clarify that I remind you now that it is Milton's God Milton's Jesus and Milton's Satan that I am dealing with in this podcast okay now now that that's dealt with, I think we can just get on with it. OK, so let's start from the beginning. So I was a bit confused from the opening of book three. And one reason why is that I didn't know who was speaking originally. And I know it sounds weird because I started off assuming it was Milton because he's the storyteller. He's the bard of this, this story. And then I, I thought to myself, um, oh, maybe it's maybe it's someone else i don't know maybe it's um i don't know maybe it's the devil and i'll show you why because but milton talks about his own journey but his own journey mirrors the journey of satan and uh i'll talk about that in a minute so let's just read from this introduction hail holy light offspring of heaven firstborn or of the eternal, co-eternal beam, may I express thee unblamed, since God is light, and never but in unapproached light dwelt from eternity, dwelt then in thee, bright effluence of bright essence increate. O oh, hearst thou rather pure, ethereal stream, whose fountain who shall tell, before the sun, before the heavens thou wert, and at the voice of God, as with a mantle didst invest the rising world of waters dark and deep, one from the void and formless infinite. So it's, he starts addressing light itself. Now, um, just to summarize that very quickly, obviously light is the first thing that God creates in Genesis. He says, let there be light. Light, light is technically in Genesis created before the sun. Um, you know, 
well maybe maybe light did exist before our sun that's not exactly untrue because you know in, in astronomy our sun was probably born from another sun anyway our sun's quite a comparatively young sun in our universe so technically light was around before the sun and before there were any suns hey big bang big bang maybe that created a lot of light as well and the big bang itself wasn't a sun suns were born from the big bang so we could give him that one now couldn't we we, we could definitely give genesis that one at least that light existed before the sun existed um but he's talking really about this that, that light isn't just light from the sun it is a pure light it is almost like the essence of god is light um so this could be a metaphysical light that he's talking about too okay so now here's the bit here's where i got confused so it says v i revisit now with bolder wing escaped the stygian pool though long detained in that obscure sojourn while in my flight through utter and through middle darkness born with other notes then of the orphean lyre i sung of chaos and eternal night taught by the heavenly muse to venture down the dark descent and up to reascend though hard and rare thee i revisit safe and feel thy sovereign vital lamp this is where I got confused because I thought, wait a minute, he's depicting Satan's journey. He's saying he went on that journey too. And the fact that he said he did it with, you know, um, with bolder wing, I just thought about Satan. And I thought, how much is Milton equating himself with his own character of Satan here? Um, and it reminds me again of, of William Blake, who said that Milton was of the devil's party without knowing it. That's Blake's impression from reading Paradise Lost. Um, and I feel, yeah, and, and also just me put, talking about what, the last episode I spoke about, about that, that journey that Satan makes when he decides to leave hell and he challenges all these different entities like death and sin and, and leaps into chaos and flies around. It's all very heroic, you know, it's a heroic journey that Satan makes. Um, and he's very much a protagonist. He's the person who's making things happen. So I find these contradictions interesting. Now, um, next up and here again of course you might have worked this out already that 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 milton is talking about light but of course we know that milton when he wrote paradise lost he was blind it was dictated to other poets um such as john dryden was one of the poets who idolized milton and would help him write paradise lost so let me read here but thou revisits not these eyes that rowl in vain to find find thy piercing ray and find no dawn so thick a drop serene have quenched their orbs of dim suffusion veiled so he has not you know he's 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 talking about his blindness um a drop serene is sort of i think it was a kind of idea about a kind of liquid that filled the eyes and made people blind um milton's blindness he did not have visible cataracts i can't even remember where i got this from my um from my research but i found that somewhere so milton wouldn't necessarily have been obviously blind if you looked at his eyes themselves okay um he then speaks about dreams he talks about these great biblical wonders and he says how he nightly visits them so he still has his inward fancy um as he's called it in another poem um and so he dreams about these heavenly things but ultimately he then compares himself to homer he uses other names homer and many many of the classical poets who are also thought to be blind um and then he speaks about his process of of creating poetry from his imagination so he says feed on thoughts that voluntary move harmonious numbers numbers is, is is basically the name given for poetic meter in a lot of classical 
poetry and late Renaissance poetry. As the wakeful bird sings darkly and in shadiest covert hid, tunes her nocturnal note. He's comparing himself to a nightingale here. This is before Keats. Thus with the year seasons return, but not to me returns day or the sweet approach or even or morn or sight of vernal bloom or summer's rose or flocks or herds or human face divine, but cloud instead and ever during dark surrounds me from the cheerful ways of men cut off and for the book of knowledge fair the book of knowledge fair is the world so it is the the appearance the, the nature the world that surrounds us um, he obviously cannot see the world of nature and so that in itself as a sort of book of knowledge creation as a book of knowledge it's unavailable to him so, cut off, and for the Book of Knowledge Fair, presented with a universal blank of nature's works to me, expunged and raised, and wisdom at one entrance quite shut out. It's beautiful. So, wisdom is almost like a cave, and one entrance, obviously, of the cave is, is the world itself, his relationship with the world, and being able to see the world, um, that, that's been shut off. It, part of his relationship in the natural world has been shut off. But wisdom doesn't just come from the natural world. It can come from within as well. I think this is what he's hinting at here. Um, so much the rather thou celestial light shine inward and the mind through all her powers irradiate their plant eyes all mist from thence purge and disperse that I may see and tell of things invisible to mortal sight. So through his blindness, he feels that he is more able to see the divine. He will let God shine his light into him. And perhaps that's where his imagination can produce the work, such as the one he's producing now. So he sets the scene now. So he, Milton's God is sat in heaven and he's been watching everything. Now, I, I threw that question out there earlier in the second episode about freedom and in the first episode as well. How free is Satan? Because if we go through traditional theology, God is omniscient and omnipresent. God is everywhere. He is aware of everything. So we can only conclude, even though Satan acts as if God isn't aware of what he's doing. Maybe God is busy with something else elsewhere. It does beg that question. How can that be if we understand God to be omniscient, all-knowing and uh, omnipresent and omnipotent as well, which is being able to do anything? Um, we have some explanation here. Well, it, it will proceed from this anyway. So I'll read from this little introduction Introducing us to the Almighty Father, Milton's God. Now had the Almighty Father from above, from pure Empyrean, where he sits, high throned above all height, bent down his eye, his own works and their works at once to view. About him all the sanctities of heaven stood thick as stars, and from his sight received beatitude past utterance. On his right, the radiant image of his glory sat, his onely son. It's spelt only, but it might be only in pronunciation. His only son on earth he first beheld our first two parents, yet the only two, or the only two, I should say, of mankind in the happy garden placed, reaping immortal fruits of joy and love, uninterrupted joy, unrivaled love, in blissful solitude he then surveyed hell and the gulf between, and Satan there. Coasting the wall of heaven on this side night, 
in the dun air sublime, and ready now to stoop with wearied wings and willing feet on the bare outside of this world that seemed firm land embosomed without firmament, uncertain which in ocean or in air, him God beholding from his prospect high, wherein past, present, future he beholds, thus to his only son, foreseeing, spake. So there's a lot there. We're introduced to God, who is surveying all of his creation. We also have Milton's son of God. He's not referred to as Jesus here. So his own, his only son he's referred to. And then he's um, he's beholding our first two parents, which is the uh, the only two of mankind, Adam and Eve, in the happy garden. And then finally he can see Satan skirting along the, out, along the outside. He can see hell as well. Everything's there with invisible. And then he sees Satan himself just at the edge of our world, about to arrive. And so, yeah, God knows everything. There it says, um, you know, him God beholding from his prospect high, wherein past, present, future he beholds, thus to his only son, foreseeing spake. So he turns to the son of God and he speaks. Only begotten son, seest thou what rage transports our adversary whom no bounds prescribe no bars of hell nor all the chains heaped on him there on him there nor yet the main abyss wide interrupt can hold so bent he seems on desperate revenge that shall redound upon his own rebellious head and now through all restraint broke loose he wings his way not far off heaven in the precincts of light directly towards the new created world a man there placed with purpose to assay if him by force he can destroy or worse by some false guile pervert and shall pervert for man will hearken to his glozing lies and easily transgress the sole command sole pledge of his obedience so will fall he and his faithless progeny whose fault whose but his own ingrate he had of me all that he could have i made him just and right sufficient to have stood though free to fall so what happens here in a lot of these passages is the idea of freedom certainly rears its head. How can any of the other characters within this epic be free if God is all-powerful <laughs> and knows already of everything that is about to happen? In that case, does it not seem as if everything is predetermined, everything is set in place? It's a really big, I've, I know I've broached on the idea of freedom before in this podcast and I'll, I'll have to do so again. But some very interesting ideas here about how he has created him free to have stood and free to fall. And he also says that Adam and Eve are just too, oh yeah, they'll believe anything he says to them. If he arrives in heaven, they'll believe it. If he leads them to pervert uh, the rules, the law, they'll do it. And he's very matter of fact about this. So he's already foreseeing the fall. Well, he knows the fall is going to happen. He knows all of this stuff. So um, how can they be free? He again says, freely they stood. Who stood and fell? Who fell? Now, so before we ask bigger philosophical questions, we just have to clarify it. Yes, he has created everybody free. I don't know if he's created Adam and Eve free. Um, within... I've often found that confusing anyway within the context because um, in some depictions, if I remember right from my Catholic upbringing, um, when Adam and Eve betray God by eating of the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, the fruit is sometimes called uh, the fruit that bestows the knowledge of good and evil. 
um, and that's when they lose their innocence. But of course, if they've lost their innocence and they had no, if they were innocent before and had no knowledge of good and evil, then how can they be held responsible for what they did? So that's that. I find that interesting, and there's no answer to that here, of course. Um, but but certainly, I think one way it's dealt with in, here, as as already stated by by Milton's God, is that um, it is Satan's fault. It is not their fault. And he continues along this vein. So while he has created everyone equal, and that and now that Eden has is about to fall, um, and paradise is about to become tainted. He he at least says, "Oh no! Well, I made Satan free. He knew what the he knew what the risks were, and he did it anyway. So he's going to be punished. And while there will be consequences for Adam and Eve, there will also be grace as well for them. So, um, he he's his main reason for making people free and for making the angels free is because he felt that if they ultimately it was down to them telling him how great he is." for Milton's God and that he he um if they're not free then how can he enjoy their professions of love and faith to him whereas if he makes them free and he knows when they're lying I'm guessing he can enjoy it because they have decided to love him and they've decided to tell him to love him I think Milton's God I just just I find that quite interesting if that is the whole reason for human freedom ultimately so that he can tell genuine praise from automaton praise um milton's god must have some issues okay um so he carries on and again he's playing with this idea of freedom when he says as if predestination overruled their will disposed by absolute decree or high foreknowledge they themselves decreed their own revolt not i if i foreknew foreknowledge had no influence on their faults which had no less proved certain unforeknown this is what we call this is a milton's idea of freedom is really interesting because it's an idea of freedom that we find if you um if you look at any compatibilist philosophers so um compatibilism is the belief that yes our outcomes are predetermined but human action human freedom still exists and that ultimately indeterminism does not necessarily guarantee freedom so determinism basically means when everything is almost already it's like the billiard balls um, and their trajectories everything is already in place everything will run the way it will Um, but here he points out something that many compatibilists point out as well which is the thing that caused their actions ultimately is their will, um, their knowledge. So just because he knows they don't what they're going to do, they don't know that he knows, <laughs> which is what makes their actions free. It's a bit of a head spinner, but this is ultimately the, the this is the this is the tack that Milton is sticking to. So human human freedom isn't about everything literally being like a roulette wheel or even maybe a, a Geiger counter or something or just something where indeterminacy happens and the, and the future isn't written. It's more that whatever human freedom is has nothing to do whether they are already, that their things are already predetermined. Human freedom is all about the choices that humans make and whether it is them that made that choice rather than the blind happenings that buffet them about their life. Ultimately, if we yet yeah, if we were to look, we would say they made that decision, and they made it freely, and that is how it happened. 
and it's just more that God knew about the decision before they made it. I could talk about this all day, couldn't I? And um, we'd all get a headache. Okay, so he continues on this vein, Milton's God. I formed them free, and free they must remain, till they enthrall themselves. I else must change their nature, and revoke the high decree, unchangeable, eternal, which ordained their freedom, they themselves ordained their fall. The first sort by their own suggested fe suggestion fell, self-tempted, self-depraved, man falls deceived by the other first, man therefore shall find grace, the other none. So reiterating that idea that there will be grace available for man when he falls, but there will be no grace for Satan and his mates. So I just want to bring up one saucy line break here. Um, and this is repeated later on. But uh, again, Milton can be very sly with his line breaks. And so here he says, this is obviously Milton's God speaking. And it, when he says, till they enthrall themselves, I else must change. So the line breaks in God, Milton's God saying, I must change, which is quite blasphemous. Because God shouldn't need to change because he is everything. He is eternal. Why should he change? But then the line breaks and it says their nature. So he's not changing himself. He's changing their nature and revoking the high decree. So this is a saucy little line break, as I said, because it really plays. It creates that tension in a way. And I think there is that tension within the text, I think, of, of Milton, who is a Christian who is a Puritan Christian and his devotion to Jesus and to God. And I think there's almost this sort of as harmonious as they're depicted within the text. We often have these ideas that about what the hierarchy is and what the identities are between the son of God and God. So we finally get our reply from from the son of God um, who speaks back to Milton's God and everything's beautiful when he starts speaking and everyone chills out immediately and he addresses his father um speaks about the high praises given to him and then he gets on to the issue of what will happen to man if he is tempted and what if paradise falls so the son of god says uh, for should man finally be, be lost should man thy creature late so loved thy youngest son full circumvented thus by fraud though joined with his own folly, that be from thee far, that far be from thee, Father, who art judge of all things made, and judgest onely right. Sorry, only right, I keep getting this wrong. Or shall the adversary thus obtain his end, and frustrate thine? Shall he fulfil his malice, and thy goodness bring to naught, or proud return through it to his heavier doom, yet with a revenge accomplished, and to hell, draw after him the whole race of mankind, by him corrupted? Or wilt thou self abolish thy creation, and unmake for him what for thy glory thou hast made? So should thy goodness and thy greatness both be questioned and blasphemed, without defense so the son of god puts it back to god that he says this is a bit of a no-win situation isn't it because what could happen is that um if 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 man falls then even if you punish everyone even if you punish satan he can go back to hell no matter how bad his punishment is and say i got one in i got one in I got him. I, I completely messed up his other little world. And as bad as a punishment can be, and I think this is spoken about 
in the uh, in the previous in the previous um, book as well. As bad as the punishment can be, doesn't matter because I got him. I got a little bit of revenge. And um, and so the only other option would be that, uh, you know, a man would fall as well and he would be Satan's now. And um, that even though he has grace in life, is there grace in death? It's a question being made here. And so Christ sort of says the only other option, do you just completely destroy man and paradise, the earth and everything? So let me get back into this. God replies, uh, man shall not quite be lost, but saved who will, yet not of will in him, but grace in me, freely vouchsafed. By sin, uh, sorry, I'm skipping a few bits here. By sin to foul, exorbitant desires. Upheld by me, yet once more he shall stand on even ground against his mortal foe. Sorry, he's talking about the devil now. By me upheld, and he may know how frail his fallen condition is. And to me, oh, all his deliverance, and to none but me. So... He says that grace will be available for man. Uh, man will not quite be lost, but dev oh, the devil's going to get it. He goes back to speaking about man. Some I have chosen of peculiar grace, elect above the rest, so is my will. The rest shall hear me call and oft be warned, their sinful state and to appease betimes the incensed deity, while offered grace invites, for I will clear their senses dark, what may suffice and soften stony hearts to pray, repent and bring obedience due to prayer, repentance and obedience due. Though but devoured with sincere intent, sorry, devoured, though but endeavoured with sincere intent, mine ear shall not be slow, mine eye not shut, and I will place within them as a guide, my umpire conscience, whom, if they will hear, light after light, well used, they shall attain, and to the end persisting, safe arrive. This is my long sufferance and my day of grace. This my long sufferance and my day of grace. Again, freedom is the great project, and that man will have their grace in earth if they if if they pray to him, if they um you know, if they repent their sins and if they have obedience, he will see it, he will know it. Um, and then he says, And none but such from mercy, mercy I exclude, but yet all is not done. And then he speaks about man's disobedience. To expiate his treason hath naught left, but to destruction sacred and devote. He with his whole posterity must die. Die he, or justice must, unless for him some other able and is willing pay the rigid satisfaction, death for death. Now he's addressing everyone here. So, um, yes, if man disobeys Christ, that is it. Or if he disobeys God, that is it. He's done. Um, or at least I think he says that. I think he says that, or it might just be man is done anyway. I'm not entirely sure. But he says that this can be fixed if someone offers down their life. You know, rigid death for death, the rigid satisfaction. I say no more. The rigid satisfaction, death for death. That's the price that needs to be paid. Um, so that's when he, he's addressing everyone in heaven here. And he, he asked, but all the heavenly choir stood mute. So um, I don't know, the, 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 all the angels sort of looked down and sort of hid, hid their arms in their wings and just sort of went, la, da, 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 da. hope someone volunteers, but it probably won't be me. And um, and so, you know, oh no, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? But of course, the Son of God speaks out. Um, he speaks about how, yes, man is damned and he cannot receive grace in death. 
Um, but then, of course, Christ offers himself. So, behold me then, me for him, life for life. I offer on me, let thine anger fall. Account me, man, I for his sake will leave thy bosom and his glory next to thee, freely put off and for him lastly die, well pleased on me, let death wreck all his rage. Under his gloomy power I shall not long lie vanquished. Thou hast given me to possess life in myself forever, by thee I live, though now to death I yield, and am his due. All that of me can die, yet that debt paid, thou wilt not leave me in the loathsome, loathsome grave. His prey, nor suffer my unspotted soul, for ever with corruption there to dwell. But I shall rise victorious and subdue my vanquisher, spoiled of his wanted spoil. Death is death's wound shall then receive, and stoop inglorious of his mortal sting disarmed. I, through the ample air in triumph high, shall lead hell captive, Morgadeth, and show the powers of darkness bound. Thou at the sight, pleased out of heaven, shalt look down and smile, while by thee raised I ruin all my foes, death last, and with his carcass glut the grave. Then with the multitude of my redeemed shall enter heaven, long absent, and return, Father, to see thy face, wherein no cloud of anger shall remain. But peace assured, and reconcilement wrath shall be no more, hence forth, thenceforth, but in thy presence, joy entire. We got the gist of that. Christ says, I'll die, but then I will rise again because you will bring me back, um, my father, and death will be defeated, the world will be defeated, and I you know I would have paid for price of it, everyone can be redeemed. Also, um, death is referred to again as a kind of character. So death is, you know, if we read this without think, reading the earlier books, we would have thought of death as this more abstract thing that's perhaps being personified. But we know death is an actual sinister creature from already experiencing death in book two, guarding the gates of hell. So he gives his speech and then admiration seized all heaven, but this might mean and weather tend wandering. But soon the almighty thus replied, so God is very pleased. All of heaven is rejoicing. Everyone's happy at this, probably because they're not the ones who have to die, but also because we, you know, Christ will give himself, but he will not die. He will rise again as well. So um, he speaks about how he's, how the, the, the Milton's God replies, speaks about how, how dear um, his son is to him, nor man the least foe last created, that for him I spare thee from my bosom and right hand to save, by losing thee a while, the whole race lost. For therefore whom thou only canst receive, sorry, thou therefore whom thou only canst receive, their nature also to thy nature joined. Another crafty line break there, thou therefore whom thou only canst redeem, their nature also to thy nature joined. Because um, it seems like this absolute statement that only the Son of God can redeem. But then he says only he can redeem their nature, which is slightly different. Also to thy nature joined and be thyself man among earth, men on earth made flesh. Then time shall be, when time shall be a virgin seed by wondrous birth. 
sleep of it, speaking about the virgin birth there. Be thou in Adam's room, the head of all mankind, though Adam's son, as in him perish all men, so in thee, as from a second root, shall be restored, as many as are restored, without thee none. His crime makes guilty, all his sons, thy merit imputed, shall absolve them who renounce their own both righteous and unrighteous deeds, and live in thee transplanted, and from thee receive new life. So, God speaks about what most Christians believe these days, in which that um, Milton's God speaks of how Christ, through sacrifice, creates a way for people, if they accept him, to live forever and be saved from death and damnation and from their sins. So, um, what else does he speak about? He also speaks here, nor shalt thou, by descending to assume man's nature, lessen or degrade thine own. So that's an interesting point. Yes, you'll be born in the flesh, but you will be, you will not be degraded. You'll be just as pure as before. Um, because thou hast through throat, though throned in highest bliss, equal to God, and equally enjoying God-like fruition, quitted all to save a world from utter loss, and has been found by merit more than birthright, son of God, found worthiest to be so by being good. Again, playing around with the line breaks here, because thou hast, though throned in highest bliss, equal to God and equally enjoying. Now, the, this is what he's saying. The bliss he speaks of is equal to God. But just by breaking that line and saying equal to God, he's also saying that the Son of God is equal to God too. Now, this is what a lot of Christians believe. Um, but I don't know if that's how it, how it was in Milton's time. I don't really know what kind of hierarchy was available, whether there's a lot of ambiguity that he is perhaps striving to hint at. Um, his own interpretation by by through the medium of crafty little line breaks that he's so good at. Okay. There's a lot of traffic going by my window. But also, okay, so also he speaks about how, you know, he was he was he was son of God already by birth, but now he'll be the, the son of God um by merit, by 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 going through with this this heroic action of sacrificing himself for the good of man. So he finally says, you know, what the reward of Christ will be. And he says, you will reign both God and man, son both of God and man, um, because Christ has been called the Lamb of God and the Son of Man as well, because he's, well, he, is he the Son of, he's not really Joseph's son though, is he? Son of mankind, perhaps, because he's descended from Adam, I think is, is probably what's meant. So, you know, a direct descendant of God, but also a descendant of Adam. Um, and he speaks about what will happen. And then finally, he moves on to talk about Christ's um, final role with regard to the earth, which is when he will return, of course, to judge the living and the dead. So the summoning archangels to proclaim thy dread tribunal forthwith from all winds the living and forthwith the sighted dead of all past ages to the general doom shall hasten. Such appeal shall rouse their sleep. Then all thy saints assembled thou shalt judge. Bad men and angels they arraigned shall sink beneath thy sentence. Hell her numbers fall thenceforth shall be for ever shut. Meanwhile the world shall burn and from her ashes spring new heaven and earth, wherein the just shall dwell, and after all their tribulations long see golden days fruitful of golden deeds, with joy and love triumphing and fair truth, for regal, uh, then thou thy regal sceptre shalt lay by, for regal sceptre then no more shall need, 
God shall be all in all, but all ye gods adore him, who encompass all this dies, adore the Son and honour him as me. So, yep, he speaks about Armageddon, the end of the world. Um, some interesting points made near the end there. So, obviously, he speaks about the, how the dead shall rise and the living and dead will both line up to be judged and the world will be destroyed and there will be um, a new world and heaven for everyone to live on and then hell will be shut. All this, the last sinners will be sent to hell and they'll just shut that place off and that'll be it. That'll be, they're, they're done. They're just locked away and we just carry on going, yay, Armageddon. And, um, yeah, so... Um, there's something a bit, yeah, something a little bit cheeky here as well at the end, which is, of course, we got to remember that, that historically, Milton was very closely allied with Oliver Cromwell, who was a person who was responsible for bringing down the monarchy. And of course, Milton was a wanted man when the monarchy was restored after Oliver Cromwell died, um, and uh, he was um, he was eventually pardoned, uh, but he was a wanted man for quite a while. Uh, so you think he's he's on his best behaviour here, but there we go. You know, then thou thy regal scepter shalt lay by for regal scepter. Then no more shall need. God shall be all in all. So there will be an equality from all creatures, all people everywhere. Um, there'll be no need to rule them. Um, so that, that's quite interesting that, that, that actually the, the, the scepter and the role of monarchy will be abolished after Armageddon. And while he applies it to a sort of religious framework, I wonder how much he's looking back to his old utopia and the monarchy that they overthrew. Um, it's meant to be the Paradise Lost, as said before, but some people see Paradise Lost actually as his, he feels that his world, his future, the future England that he wanted, the Puritan England that ruled over, not by monarchy, but by the Lord Protector. Um, that's, that is what Milton wanted and then it was taken away from him. So his paradise was lost. His idea of the future was lost. Anyway, after all this is said, after that God accepts Christ's sacrifice, heaven goes, yay, heaven rung with jubilee and loud hosannas filled the eternal regions. Everyone is cheering. Um, the angels pull off their crowns and they throw them to the ground. They've got lovely garlands of flowers that they throw to the ground as well. And they've got little garlands tying up their 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 locks of hair, the angels, which also they unfasten and they throw to the ground for, for Christ to walk along or for the son of God, the son of Milton's God, to walk along. And this obviously echoes um, Christ's entrance into entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, where again he was welcomed and people intentionally sung Hosanna and laid palms at his path in order to echo the um, the prophecies that were made about the Messiah. Uh, and that got him in a lot of trouble. And he, he he was, you know, as I said, he was crucified not long after that. But it's interesting that we have this we have this description um, that's very similar to Palm Sunday. And then um, they start playing music. Here we go. Uh, then crowned again their golden harps, they took harps ever tuned for glittering by their side like quivers hung. And with preamble sweet of charming symphony, they introduced their sacred song and waken raptures high. No voice exempt, no voice but well could join melodious part. Such concord is in heaven. So they play harps, they sing songs and they play harps. Now there is that line, isn't there? The devil has all the best tunes because... This does sort of echo with the little procession that happens after Satan decides that they will build a hall and they would 
make plans to strike back God and it's better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Now there, they've got drums and they've got flags and they've got trumpets. I know God also has a trumpet. He has his mighty trumpet of wrath, doesn't he? That's already been hinted at in this in this um, epic poem so far in previous books. But uh, again, heaven, it's all harps and stuff like that. And you do get this feeling that maybe as far as processions go, that one in Milton's hell sounds a bit more fun than the harp procession in heaven you kind of feel that you might have a bit more of a rave in the bowels of eternal punishment than you might in the uh in the happy in the happy neighborhood of heaven so there's that isn't there <laughs> so i think here's something because actually i'm it took me a while i had to go for a few reads to really get into this one and it is true that um, when people speak about Dante and his Divine Comedy, the most interesting and engaging book is, of course, Inferno. Um, there's just something about hell as an artistic and a literary entity compared to heaven. Um, and I think uh, Purgatory, of course, was in, was in Dante's. But here we've seen heaven and hell. And the worlds between, the sort of chaos realms that lie between, and we've hear, we've heard about Earth, but the place that seems to be the most interesting, um, in many ways, again, in how it's evoked, is how. And I think um, maybe it's something that, that pain is always pain in literature, and suffering in literature, and even evil in literature can be quite compelling, whereas goodness can become quite dull. Maybe not in real life. I think goodness can be fantastic. It can be wonderful. Maybe. Um, to experience heaven for real is of course far better to experience hell for real and yet as soon as there's a literary or an artistic interpretation one just seems more interesting than the other I've always found that interesting how we artists seem to fail more when trying to evoke the highest bliss and the greatest joys um, than when they're evoking eternal torment damnation and sin okay so um, here's some interesting descriptions here. So they start singing, um, and they sing to the father first, and then they sing to the son, the angels. So they say, the father first, they sung omnipotent, immutable, immortal, infinite, eternal king, the author of all being, fountain of life, thyself, invisible, amidst the glorious brightness where thou sitst, throne inaccessible, but when thou shapest the full blaze of thy beams, and through a cloud drawn round about thee like a radiant shrine, dark with excessive bright, thy skirts appear, yet dazzle heaven, that brightest seraphim approach not, but with both wings, their or their eyes. Um, so, an interesting description of God, which we've seen in parts of the Bible, um, that, that, that no one really sees God in the Bible, apart from, I think, Moses sees God, but is only allowed to glimpse his hind parts. Um, so, yeah, a description of, of Milton's God as someone who can't be seen. Great light shines for him. Then there's this cloud that goes around him anyway. You can't see his face through this cloud. But then the lights that still, the beams of light that make it through this cloud are still so bright for all seraphim who are the angels that get closest to God. I read a lot up on angels in the research for this. And I've got to say, angels... I'll contradict everything that I've just said about one thing being more interesting. Angels are intense. When you read about these descriptions of angels and stuff, they are not these lardy-dardy things. They are fierce and intense and quite frightening creatures. 
Um, and I, I can see how Milton, in this sense, maybe inspired um, his dark materials. Um, so anyway, um, so they describe God as this entity that can't be seen. But then, of course, they say, um, the next they sang of all creation first, begotten sung divine similitude in whose conspicuous countenance without cloud made visible the almighty father shines whom else no creature can behold so they address jesus because or they address the son of god because they can see him they can see the son of god and there's something about god's nature that radiates from him now again lots of christian theological ideas here this idea that perhaps god is unknowable but god made man is a way in which um, draws humanity closer to God would be perhaps a Christian idea, a Christian belief. So um, they then speak about the rebellion in hell and they sing praises for rebellion of hell. And it's interesting because I hear the son of God plays a, plays a role in it. So he's not all meek and mind, mild all the time here. So um, they speak about the, the, the rebel angels by thee created and by thee threw down the aspiring dominations. Thou that day thy father's dreadful thunder didst not spare nor stop thy flaming chariot wheels that shook heaven's everlasting frame while over the next thou droves of warring angels disarrayed back with from pursuit thy powers with loud acclaim the only extolled son of thy father's might to execute fierce vengeance on his foes not so on man Again, Jesus does not, you know, sees mankind with mercy, but uh, the devils and the rebel angels, he's, he ain't got time for them. Um, but it's interesting, but it appears that Christ, during that rebellion, was, was, was riding a chariot with flaming wheels over their necks um, and driving them back. So, not entirely passive role in that battle there. So, um, the angels finish their song now. So, hail son of God. Saviour of men, thy name shall be the copious matter of my song. Henceforth and never shall my heart thy praise forget, nor from thy father's praise disjoin. Thus they in heaven above the starry sphere, their happy hours in joy and hymning spent. Meanwhile upon the firm, opacious globe of this round world. So, you know, they're talking about how the angels are singing. But meanwhile, somewhere else. Meanwhile upon the firm, opacious globe of this round world whose first convex divides the luminous inferior orbs enclosed from chaos and the inroad of darkness old satan alighted walks da, da, da. a globe far off it seemed now seems a boundless continent dark waste and wild under the frown of night starless exposed and ever threatening storms of chaos blustering round in clement sky so satan is still at the edge of the world um, the, I guess is the universe or how the universe was understood so it's not just earth it is the world that contains paradise but other planets and other worlds too within it so sometimes within this this book and within the rest of paradise lost world is has a much wider application and it actually I guess means universe or what was understood to be the universe in Milton's time here walked the feed, fiend at large in spacious field uh, and it, I, I, I just have to read this bit out because I think it's an amazing image. As when a vulture on Emmaus bred, Emmaus is the Himalayas, whose snowy ridge the roving Tartar bounds, that's the uh, Mongol Mongol um, invaders, the roving Tartar bounds, dislodging from a region scarce of prey to gorge the flesh of lambs or yingling kids. 
on hills where flocks are fed, flies toward the springs of Ganges or Hydaspes, Indian streams, but in this way lights on the barren plains of Seraghand, that's the Gobi Desert, where Chineses drive, Chineses was the plural of Chinese, or the collective noun for Chinese people when Milton was writing this, where Chineses drive with sails and wind their canny wagons light. So in this windy sea of land, the fiend walked up and down alone, bent on his prey, alone for other creature in this place, living or lifeless to be found was none. So Satan's walking about, he's looking around now, he's at the edge of this universe, like that vulture that has come from the Himalayas and has flown over India to land upon um, the Gobi Desert near China uh, to look for new prey. Um, but of course he finds no prey. Now what does he find instead? Oh, I'm going to skip over so much right now. Ultimately, he finds this version of limbo. All these sort of half-created beings are there, which are referred to actually like the races of giants in Genesis. So all these sort of abominations seem to be there. Um, but also he starts to see the false philosophers as well and the fools. So the one, um, Empedocles, uh, who leaped fondly into Etna's flames, convinced um, that he he was God. Um, and it's meant to be that, that, that Etna just sort of coughed up his body again, um, all burnt up and finely crisped. But then he moves on um, to, to talk about other foolish philosophers, but really he really moves on to his, his target here. And his target here is definitely um, the Catholics, um, people that he feel feels that... Um, have not really have become too attached to work the world worldly ways um and i'll explain why he can see all these things by the way satan obviously this because this is set at a time when um was set at a time when there's just two people you know as far as the human race is concerned in the garden of eden so this is this was confusing for me when i read through it but then i understood as i got further through what it meant so for now he's talked about all these half created feet creatures then he's spoken about the sort of these idiots these uh the, the the stupid people that get everything wrong and finally he saves his ire for the catholics here uh then might see ye cows hoods and habits with their wearers tossed and fluttered into rags then relics beads indulgences dispenses pardons bulls bull is a papal decree the sport of winds all these upworld aloft fly over the backside of the world far off into a limbo large and broad since called the paradise of fools to few unknown long after now unpeopled and untrod. All this dark globe the fiend found as he passed and soon he wandered till at last a gleam of dawning light turned thitherward in haste his travelled steps far distant he descries. So basically he speaks about the paradise of fools so what what is to be understood from this is is satan can somehow glimpse limbo but as a sort of future limbo that has been filled up he can see the ghosts that almost the future ghosts of those that are about to fill up limbo now it moves on and he spots the gates of heaven so you can see the gates of heaven there shining and, and here he starts to sort of talk about the people that could visit heaven he speaks about jacob's dream of a ladder that went from heaven to the earth um, that the angels could walk up and down um, and so he gives descriptions ultimately of that and then um and then of other biblical figures um, but here he says the stairs were then let down whether to dare the fiend by easy ascent or aggravate his sad exclusion from the doors of bliss so he speaks about these stairs the, the entrance of heaven is there and the stairs are available 
Um, and it hints here that they know, they know he's there, doesn't it? You know, as if, I guess, whether to dare the fiend by easy ascent or aggravate his sad exclusion, they're there to almost taunt him. So I guess Satan still goes on believing, though, that he's, that he's been undetected. Um, okay, so it carries on. Um, there's a long interlude about the sun as well so you know about the sun so we're getting closer to the world and he speaks about other worlds as well which satan chooses not to pass as well but the sun it really lingers on a very long description um, of the sun and i find that quite interesting because lucifer of course is the um, another name that's been applied to satan now lucifer i don't know my roman mythology well enough but lucifer originally comes from the, the sort of roman doesn't it and it means bringer of light if i remember and i don't know if it's a roman god or a star or something like that the morning star i think is named after him the bringer of light um but it has in other theology such as um in islamic theology Lucifer is interpreted as Satan's um, pre-fallen form. So when he was an angel in heaven, he was Lucifer, um, the brightest star. But when he fell, he became um, Shaitan or Satan. Um, now, I, I don't know how well acquainted um, Milton is with Islam at this point. Um, but I know that this idea of Satan's Lucifer being Satan's sort of pre-fallen form has been around for a while and um, I know that um, that th this lingering description of the sun I don't know I just think I think maybe it plays into that those ideas anyway Satan from hence now on the lower stair that scaled by steps of gold to heaven gates looks down with wonder at the sudden view of all this world at once as when a scout through dark and desert ways with peril gone all night at last by break of cheerful dawn obtains the brow of some high climbing hill which to his eye discovers unaware of a goodly prospect of some foreign land first seen or some renowned metropolis with glistering spires and pinnacles adorned which now the rising sun gilds with his beams. Such wonder seized, though after heaven's seen the spirit malign, but much more envy seized. All sight of this world beheld so fair, round he surveys, and well might where he stood, so high above the circling canopy of night's extended shade, from eastern point of Libra to the fleecy star that bears Andromeda far off Atlantic seas, beyond the horizon, then from pole to pole. He views in breadth without longer pause, down right into the world's first region throws his flight precipitant and winds with ease through the pure marble air. The air isn't made of marble, it's more the smoothness of the air that's hinted here. Through the pure marble hair is a bleak way amongst innumerable stars that shone, stars distant, but nigh hand seemed other worlds, or other worlds they seemed, or happy lies. Like those Hesperian gardens famed of old, fortunate fields and groves and flowery vales, thrice happy isles, but who dwelt happy there, he stayed not to inquire. I'm going to, as I said, I'm skipping over a lot of stuff here, but he's being drawn to the sun and he can see the other worlds possibly thought to be the other planets, but he doesn't want to give them a go. There's a lot on, again, I'm going to skip right over this. If you're interested in it, fine. It's beautifully written, but it's full of quite obscure references ultimately to pre-Newtonian astronomy and alchemy as well when he's describing what perhaps the sun could be made of, whether it is some kind of jewel and how the universe works and how it slots together and the numbers of the universe. Um, so 
he, he, I'm, I'm, st- I'm skipping over that so I can get to the last narrative beat of this book. So um, finally, after speaking about alchemy and the sun and, and, and Satan's relationship to the sun and the sun's relationship to the, to the other worlds. Um, here, matter new to gaze, the devil met, undazzled far and wide his eye commands. For sight, no obstacle found here, nor shade, but all sunshine as when his beams at noon culminate from the equator, as they now shot upward, still direct, thence no way round, shadow from body opaque and fall, and the air nowhere so clear sharpened his visual ray. That's an interesting thing. Vision was seen as almost like a beam that went outwards in medieval times. You find it in lots of sonnets, the, the idea of the eye beam to ob- objects distant far, whereby he soon saw within Ken a glorious angel stand. So Satan is there. He's near the sun, I'm guessing. He's seen all these different worlds, but doesn't know where to go. And he's you know, emblazoned with sunshine. Light is everywhere. And then finally he sees an angel. The angel turns out to be one of the seraphim, Uriel, which is the seraphim, as I said already, are the are the angels that are allowed nearest to God. They are also Uriel, in essence, is also God's eye. He's someone who actually goes to view the world as well. So, um, even though God's everywhere, but but let's just let's just indulge Milton's um, mythology here. So, to objects distant far, whereby he stood, saw within Ken a glorious angel stand, the same whom John saw, also in the sun. His back was turned, but not his brightness hid. Of beaming sunny rays, a golden tiara circled his head, nor less his locks behind, illustrious on his shoulders, fledged with wings, lay waving round. On some great charge employed he seemed, or fixed in cogitation deep. Glad was the spirit, impure as now in hope, to find who might direct his wandering flight, to paradise, the happy seat of man, his journey's end and our beginning woe. But first he casts to change his proper shape, which else might work him danger or delay, and now a stripling cherub he appears, not of a prime, yet such as in his face you smiled celestial, and to every limb suitable grace diffused so well he feigned, under a coronet his glowing hair. So Satan has changed himself into a cherub. Now cherubs are seen also as one of the higher orders of angel. And um, even though they are portrayed as children in Renaissance paintings or like babies, almost with arrows, um, they are angels that defend. I think um, they are angels that are close, that, 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 that work within knowledge, I think, if I can remember right. I've written some notes here, actually. Um, the cherubs are a higher order of, of angel. Their functions seem to revolve around knowledge and wisdom, but there is also um, a, a cherub with a flaming sword who guards the entrance of Eden as well. So anyway, here he goes. Um, so after describing this beautiful appearance of um, Uriel, Satan disguises himself as a cherub. So, and now a stripling cherub, so like a young cherub, I guess, like an adolescent cherub, I don't know. He appears, not of the prime, yet such as in his face you've smiled celestial, and to every limb suitable grace diffused, so well he feigned under a coronet his glowing hair, in curls on eve a cheek, plaid wings he wore of many a coloured plume sprinkled with gold. 
his habit fit for speed succinct and held, before his decent steps a silver wand, he drew not nigh unheard, the angel bright ere he drew nigh, his radiant visage turned, admonished by his ear, and straight was known the archangel Uriel, one of the seven who in God's presence, nearest to his throne, stands steady at command, and are his eyes that run through all the heavens or down to the earth. Bear his swift errands over moist and dry, o'er sea and land, him Satan thus accosts. Um, so Satan now addresses Uriel, so I'll read everything Uriel, that Satan, disguised as a cherub, says to him. Uriel, for thou of those seven spirits that stand in sight of God's high throne, gloriously bright, the first art once his great authentic will, interpreter through highest heaven to bring, where all his sons thy embassy attend, and here art likeliest by supreme decree, like honour to obtain, and as his eye, to visit oft his new creation round. So now um, the, the cherub, the devilly cherub, speaks about what his intention is. Unspeakable desire to see and known all his ease, his wondrous works, but chiefly man, his chief delight and favour, for him for whom all these his works so wondrous he ordained have brought me from the choirs of cherubim, alone thus wandering, brightest seraph tell, in which of all these shining orbs hath man his fixed seat, or fixed seat hath none, but all these shining orbs his choice to dwell, that I may find him, and with secret gaze or open admiration him behold, on whom the great creator hath bestowed worlds, and on whom hath all these graces powered, that both in him and all things as is meet, the universal maker we may praise, who justly hath driven out his rebel foes to deepest hell, and to repair that loss, created his new happy race of men, to serve him better, wiser all his ways. I'm trying to do like a Richard III type devil there, because I find that quite funny, just the devil having to finish his little monologue about how he really wants to see where man is and can you tell me where I can find man and then he talks about how great God is and then sort of says wise are all his ways um just to make sure that he wasn't some you know just in case he might have thought he was some devil he didn't like God at all so anyway okay so spoke the false dissembler unperceived for neither man nor angel can discern hypocrisy the only evil that walks invisible except to God alone by his permissive will through heaven and earth. So it's interesting saying man and angels cannot perceive hypocrisy, only God can hear. And oft through wisdom wake, suspicion, and oft though wisdom wake, suspicion sleeps at wisdom's gate, and to simplicity resigns her charge, while goodness thinks no ill where no ill seems, which now for once beguiled Uriel, though regent of the sun and held the sharpest sighted spirit of all in heaven, who, to the fraudulent impostor foul, in his uprightness answer thus returns. So Milton's defending Uriel for being so easily fooled by Satan here. So Uriel replies, Fair angel, thy desire which tends to know the works of God, thereby to glorify the great workmaster, leads to no excess that reaches blame, but rather merits praise, for more it seems excess, that led thee hither from thy imperial mansion thus alone, to witness with thine eyes what some perhaps contended with report, here onely in heaven, here only in heaven. Gotta stop mispronouncing only as onely. But spelling... Okay, so, um, yeah, he sees something good for you. You want to check it out yourself? Oh, that's brilliant. Because, you know, all those other cherubs, they just hear that you're great. It's great that man is great and great. And they're just happy with that. But you want to see for yourself. Good for you. Good effort, sir. Good effort. 
you know, typical middle management here. So, he, he yeah, he praises him. Then he goes on. So, before he tells the devil or the cherub where he can find man, he goes on a long, a long, uh, just let's say he has a long preamble about all of creation, um, how the world was created and the glory of creation and what's great about it as well. And for, for a good, I mean, it's beautifully written, but you can you can check it out yourself. But I find it quite funny. You know, Satan probably looking at his watch as for 40 lines, Uriel is praising him and then just saying, oh, it's all brilliant. And it was made like this and it's fantastic. And then finally he gets around to the directions. We've all been there, haven't we? Asking someone for directions and they take forever to finally get to the point and say, just go down the end of there and there and you're there. So that's what happens. Um, that spot to which I point is paradise, Adam's abode, those lofty shades his bower, thy wave else canst not miss me, mine requires. Uh, thus said, he turned, <laughs> sorry I didn't understand, let me say that again. That spot to which I point is paradise, Adam's abode, those lofty shades his bower, thy wave else canst not miss me, mine requires. Thus said, he turned, and Satan bowing low, as two superior spirits is want in heaven where honour due and reverence none neglects, took leave and toward the coast of her beneath, down from the ecliptic sped with hoped success, that's the path of the sun, the ecliptic, froze his steep flight in many an airy wheel, not stayed till on Nifates' top he lands. That's a mountain in Armenia. So there we go. That's the end of book three. So Satan finally gets these directions. He's disguised as a cherub. We know he's going to disguise himself as something else when he lands in paradise. Um, and there he arrives. So there we go. There's a chapter where it takes quite a while. You know, there was a cliffhanger at the end of chapter two almost where Satan had arrived at the world. And then he doesn't actually get any further. Um, it's almost like a flashback episode of a Netflix program, you know, when you feel that it's making progress. And then they go, but firstly, we want to show you the backstory of one character for 50 minutes, and then you can get on with where the cliffhanger was. And it feels a bit like that. Ultimately, Satan does this great heroic journey at the end of book two, flying around everywhere. And then he gets to what is his destination and gets a bit lost. But it gives us this idea, it gives us the opportunity to see to see what is happening in heaven, to confirm whether Milton's God is knowledgeable of Satan's actions. It turns out he is, and how they know what will happen afterwards and what the plans are. And yet, I am so curious as to see how Milton will evoke Eden, how he will evoke Adam and Eve, and how this will develop in the next Oh, we'll be book four next. So uh, there will be a, a, another nine books, I do believe. So um, if my maths are rubbish, then please send me an email and let me know. Um, that's it for this episode. Um, you can stop listening to that, me now or you can listen to me um, beg for money um, <laughs> and make excuses. I don't know if you've noticed right now, but there's this worldwide pandemic. And I've been very late with my episodes of Rusty Sonnets because I found it incredibly difficult to concentrate right now i'm sat in my office and the trees are beginning to bud and the, the leaves are beginning to blossom from those trees and i am very grateful to at least have a window to look out of on both sides of my flat but other than that i'm being very diligent trying to keep me and my family safe and i wish a lot more people outside uh this flat in london right now would do the same um so that is why it's taken me a long time but i 
because of that, actually, I've been very slow and careful in how I've researched this episode and planned it out. And so I found that I, I uh, found it a lot easier in the end because of excessive preparation um, to go through with it. Um, and I'm just glad I've finally knocked this one out. Now, um, if you'd like to help me in any way whatsoever, you can always share this podcast, tell people about it on Twitter or via email or whatever, or even via face. Well, you know, I normally say face to face human contact, but there's probably like at most two or three people or maybe nobody, but you can have face to face contact. So everything is online. Speak about it on Zoom if you like. Um, and also, um, here's the begging bit. OK, I've left it this late, to be fair. A lot of people do their little audible advert right at the beginning or their little begging thing at the beginning. I'm right at the end here for the begging, okay? Um, if you'd like to remunerate me, if you've been in, if you've been enjoying this and you want to throw a, throw a couple of coins in my virtual tip cup, you can. There will be links to my Ko-Fi account or my coffee account and you can buy me a coffee. And that'd be really great because quite a few of my streams of revenue have dried up. <laughs> I'm lucky I've still got some work, but our household income has unfortunately um, in many ways collapsed due to the other earner in this household being furloughed and uh, and uh, yeah, not getting their money for a while as I might not get any money for a while either. So um, while we are in no ways like super destitute, every bit of money will help me. So if you have enjoyed these, and that's that's what I'm going to say. I'm not I'm not begging for you to do it because uh, I am I'm up the, the creek of poo because a lot of people are right now and you might be too. So ultimately, if you're just as skint as I am or whatever, that's absolutely fine. Enjoy the episode and share it if you can. But if you feel that you are able, um, if you feel that you know, no, I've really enjoyed that and I haven't seen you for a while and I've missed you and I'd love you to do more of these and get a bit better at doing these now that you've kind of shaken off your torpor, then um, here's a cup of coffee for you. Um, just to help you out along the way that's all I ask also I might enable SoundCloud have got in contact saying that um, so if you are listening to this via SoundCloud there might be a button you can press to donate something as well because I got an email about it last night but I haven't enabled it so that might be enabled if you're on SoundCloud right now um, but if not episode description there's a link to my Ko-Fi account and if you want to throw us a couple of coins that would be fantastic. My voice is going because I, I don't talk this much now that I'm locked in, just shouting at my kids most of the time. Now I'm not. I'm pretty chilled, actually. So thank you for listening. That's the end of this one. Um, I'm going to try and get one more Rusty Sonnets out this month before I get onto the next part of the Paradise Lost Book Club. I think I can do it now. I think I'm I don't want to speak too soon, but um, I don't know how you guys are coping. Uh, my attention span has just been shot to absolute smithereens and I find it very hard to focus on a lot of stuff, but I am getting by. I um, hope you guys are getting by too. Uh, I really appreciate your listening and I hope the situation isn't too difficult to, for you. And the reason why I've left my begging to the end is because I hope this episode has maybe alleviated things for you for a while, if it has worked. Thank you very much for listening. You can hear my voice going. I better shut up now. I'm really glad I finally got around to recording another one of these. Have a good one.